Hey everyone, welcome to episode 89 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen, and welcome to the new year. This week's guest is Greg Russell. Greg is a photographer and science teacher living in Southern California. Uh, Greg has been devoting a lot of time photographing wilderness areas in California, and he's been documenting that on his website, alpenglowimagesphotography.com. Greg and I sat down to discuss his project and hear from Greg on the importance of deserts, conservation issues, and lots, lots more. There's even more goodness over on Patreon this week. Uh, Greg gives us some great advice on something I think we all struggle with, which is finding interesting subjects to shoot close to home. Before we get started, I wanted to tell you about one of our sponsors, Jason Matias, founder of The Art of Selling Art. You might remember him from episode 79, where we discussed the business of art, marketing, art fairs, and my personal favorite, finding your voice. Jason's platform, The Art of Selling Art, is a Facebook group, community, and subscription platform for photographers and artists who are serious about earning an income from their art. Jason is a super personable and down-to-earth guy. He takes time to answer all of your questions, and he tells it to you straight up, something I personally really appreciate. The Art of Selling Art is evolving from a yearly subscription platform to a lifetime membership. Check it out. I subscribed and joined the community on Facebook. It has been really useful to have people to bounce ideas off of, and the information Jason shares with members is super invaluable. You can find The Art of Selling Art in Facebook groups and the platform at www.jasonmatias.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-M-A-T-I-A-S.com. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters and podcast producers, Michael Howard, Jack Curran, Eric Stenslin, Chris Rice, Jeff Peterson, Charlotte Gibb, and Jason Matias. These amazing folks are helping keep the podcast alive. If you want to share the word about your services to the landscape photography community, you too can support the podcast on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash f-stop and listen. Here we go. Awesome. Well, uh, Greg Russell, it's really cool to have you on the podcast, dude. Yeah, thanks, Matt. I really appreciate the invitation. You know, I've been a fan of a lot of what you've been doing, and it's nice to hear what other photographers are up to, kind of in their own words, and uh, in more of a conversational setting than you see on Facebook or blogs and stuff. So it's fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's the uh, that's the goal, anyway. If, if it was boring, uh, people wouldn't like it as much. So hopefully, we keep it at least slightly entertaining. I'll do my best. (laughs) Right. Well, um, so yeah, I mean, obviously you come um, highly recommended uh, by some of my favorite uh, photographers and people, including uh, Sarah Marino and and Jackson Freshman and other people. So um, yeah, for people that maybe have never heard about you before, maybe just kind of give us a quick overview of like who you are what you do when you're not taking pictures and um, yeah, like what got you into this, this whole landscape thing? You bet. Yeah, no problem. So, uh, well, I, I live in Southern California now. I, uh, uh, photography, like a lot of landscape photographers is not my full-time job. I'm a, I'm a biology teacher at a local community college here in Southern California. So that kind of works to pay the bills during the day and, and then we get out as much as we can into wilderness areas and things like that. And of course, try to make images when we go. So um, that's kind of where I'm at right now. I've been here in Southern California about 15 years. Uh, but uh, prior to, to moving here for graduate school, I was living in, in Laramie, Wyoming uh, for a couple <laughs> of years. And I actually grew up in Farmington, New Mexico. So just south of you. Oh, wow. That's hilarious. Yeah, so my parents actually still live in Farmington. Uh, I try to make it back at least once a year. And, uh, you know, that's the Four Corners region is is kind of what I 
probably will always identify as home, even though I think I've now lived in California longer than I've lived anywhere in my life. But it's, it's, uh, uh, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. Uh, so I teach human physiology, human anatomy, uh, full time. I've been taking photographs since, well, about since 2002, right after I moved to California, I got into photography. Oh, wow. Um, one of my graduate school professors is also a photographer, and I kind of really wanted to learn to take photos that, that weren't terrible. And I know that that seems to be kind of a stock answer for a lot of photographers, right? <laughs> I just got into it because I didn't want to take sucky photos anymore, but um, it kind of became an obsession. And, and of course, uh, as... as time passed and I developed my own voice, things have changed, but I guess the one thing that hasn't changed is my, is my love for photography. So. Absolutely. Well, I'm curious, um, you know, you're, you're a science teacher and, uh, I'm really curious, especially in the current kind of political climate and where we're at today, how does your background in science and being a science teacher play into your photography at all? Well, you know, it plays in in a couple of ways. Um, in the context of the current administration, um, you know, really all I can do is just shake my head. Um, <laughs> you know, as a science, you know, I guess there are almost two different things in a lot of ways, right? There's the photographer and then there's the scientist. And as the scientist, I truly do just shake my head, mostly just at the fact that there's such anti-science rhetoric that's that's sort of taking place um it went from being sort of ignored science went from being sort of ignored to being flat out denied um you know i mean i, I think just in the last couple of weeks with all of the climate change uh reports that have come out and things like that and, and the white house blatantly says i don't believe it um and i think that that statement in and of itself sort of speaks to the blatant misunderstanding of what science is, because as you know, you probably have heard before, it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. <laughs> it's, it's true. Um, and, and, and so that's really just disconcerting in a lot of ways, you know, it's, it's really saddening. And, and, and some days it's just a really heavy thing to sort of carry around. I bet. Um, and, uh, you know, so one of the things that I try to do with my students is just try to instill this this whole notion of what science can tell us and, and what science is telling us. And, and hopefully they can go out and, and make their own choices, because I think there are people who blatantly just choose to ignore it. And then there are people who don't really know what science can tell us. And maybe if we can at least get a few of them on board, maybe we can start to change things, uh, maybe one person at a time. Um, but as far as photography goes, you know, um, I don't know that the current administration plays a ton into my photography with the exception of the fact that there are so many places that are under attack right now that it's, uh, it's nice to, to be able to go out and see those places, maybe help other people see them through my photography and maybe again, maybe one person at a time, one viewer at a time. Maybe we can start to change some minds on, on the types of things that are that are really worth protecting. Yeah, um, and I, I I think that that's especially uh, important in Southern California and and in the Mojave, because you know if you go someplace like well where you live, like the San Juan Mountains, or if you go to Southern Utah or the Pacific Northwest, I mean, the beauty is just everywhere, but. Um, you know, you're driving across the Mojave and, and all you see is miles and miles of creosote. It's, uh, it can be a little bit questionable as to why, you know, you know, why should we protect these places at all? Why are they important? So hopefully through writing and through photography, we can, we can help people to see why these places are, are just as important as the places with the, with the obvious natural beauty. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I guess kind of, uh, somewhat unrelated to that, but somewhat also related to the job is, is that you talk to other biologists who have really cool, you know, places where they like to go and, and stuff like that, whether it's to do research or, or to take their classes and things like that. And maybe I get to hear about places that, that maybe, uh, 
you know, other people may not have on their radar and stuff like that. So it's, it's kind of a good way to, to discover new places to go photograph and, and things like that. And, uh, um, you know, the University of California, for instance, has a whole natural reserve system that's that's not open to the public. So um, every once in a while, you know, you can get onto one of those sorts of places and uh, and maybe photograph something that that wouldn't normally be accessible as well. So I guess that's maybe a, a perk, <laughs> if nothing else. Yeah. Do you uh, do you find yourself um, drawn to trying to use your photography to either try to share specific messages about places or do the places in um, kind of inform what you want to photograph or is it kind of more of a dual relationship? Um, You know, I think that over the last few years, especially my photography has really been moving towards a more conservation bent um, in terms of, you know, look at this place. This is why it's important. And and it seems that more often than not, um, maybe because I'm going to those places specifically, or maybe because more places are, are in danger of development or things like that, there certainly seems to be a conservation associated sort of a thing uh, with the places I visit. So um, I don't know that I'd go so far as to call myself a conservation photographer yet, but um, the places that I'm going certainly seem to to have a, the theme of need of needing to be protected. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like, um, for better or worse, photography has had kind of a interesting relationship in general with with the West and with uh, public lands. Um, and I was hoping maybe as someone who's kind of I guess I wouldn't necessarily know that I would call you a scholar, but you probably know more than I do. So I'm going to call you a scholar, but uh, yeah, maybe maybe tell us a little bit about like that, that interplay between uh, public lands and photography and maybe kind of like a little bit of a history lesson for, for some of us. Right. Well, um, I'm going to do my best not to misspeak. I'm going to do my very best not to misspeak here as to not say anything completely and totally wrong. Um, But you're right. Public lands, especially when we start to talk about public lands, most of them are in the West. So it's, uh, it's not really kind of out of the question that any landscape photographer working in the West would, would have a large part of their work on our public lands. Um, and as far as the history goes, I mean, the history of our public lands goes back pretty far. Um, you know, in the, in the late 1800s, towards the end of the Civil War, there was a whole series of homestead acts that, um, you know, basically were intended to get people to come out west and, and kind of, you know, make their homestead, you know. Um, you know, the opening of the west, so to speak, was, was what was happening in the late 1800s. Um, but as you probably know from from spending even just a little bit of time in in just about any western state um there's not a whole lot of rainfall in most places unless you know the pacific northwest or something like that is maybe taken into account but um you know it's a tough place to make a living and and as a result of that there was you know quite a bit of land left over after the hard you know after the after all the homesteads had been made and and after those acts were sort of taken out of play. So as a result of that, the the government started to try to find ways to to use that land. So, um, you know, long story short, this is where things like the Forest Service came from and the Bureau of Land Management came from. And then, of course, the Department of the Interior, which manages the National Park Service. Um, you know, those are the three main managing agencies of our national or of our, our public lands in the West um, and in the country. And, um, and they all kind of serve different purposes, right? The Bureau of Land Management, for instance, is, you know, uh, a lot of mining takes place on BLM land. A lot of grazing takes place on BLM land. Um, the Forest Service was originally primarily, uh, you know, associated with logging and, you know, timber harvest and things like that. And then the, uh, the National Park Service, of course, was was uh, was incorporated when our national park sort of came into play. So, um you know, the whole idea, I think, was, uh, you know, multiple use. You know, there's recreation. Uh, we're using our, our public lands for, for uh, 
you know, you know, different types of resources, whether it's mining, whether it's logging, whether it's grazing, etc. Um, and so, like I say, anybody who spends any time, uh, primarily in the West, is going to run into our public lands, and um, there definitely is is kind of a long history associated with the public lands. Um, you know, there's a huge movement. Um, I think it's probably a little bit bigger than I'd like to admit of people who want to return our public lands to the states for management, get them out of federal hands. Um, and then there are people who, who feel the exact opposite as a result of that. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, photography in these places is, is kind of a, an interesting sort of a, a thing because I think just simply by photographing them, um, we're, going to be part of the problem to bringing more people to them, increasing the use on these places and things like that. And, um, and I don't know what that's going to do in terms of, of the tension that that's already there in some places. And, and I don't say that to mean that, you know, by going out into public lands, you're, you're, you know, you're necessarily pissing someone off and you're going to be taken out by, by somebody who hates, hates tree hugging hippies or anything like that. That's that, you know, that's not the case, but um, it certainly adds an interesting element to it. And, and um, you know, I think the biggest thing with landscape photography is, is just knowing that, that we are, whether it's, you know, for some people intentionally, for others unintentionally, we're, we're certainly advertising these places as, as beautiful places to come visit. And, and as a result of that, more photographers are going to come and, and potentially more non-photographers as well, just coming to visit. So it's, it's definitely going to add an interesting element to the, uh, you know, to the mix. But, you know, I would say for those of us in favor of public land protection, it's probably overall a good thing to bring attention to these places. Right. Um, although the immediate impact on the land is, is, is certainly another issue altogether. Right. I guess you could, you could make an argument um, on the flip side of that, that uh, as photographers, um, it's, if we're doing a, if we're doing our job, uh, um, <clears throat> we're creating some pretty amazing photographs of these places and making them um, seem like something that people want to protect and preserve. Right, man. It's it's you know it's such a double-edged sword. You know, I mean, I know you've talked about it, a, you know, a few different times. I know that Sarah and Ron have talked about it a bunch, and. It's such a double-edged sword because if we want people to uh, to protect and preserve these places, we we kind of have to show them these places. But <laughs> the problem then, of course, is that people go to these places and increase the impact on them, and then they're not the same. <laughs> um, and I truly don't know what to do about that. Um, that's a really, really, really hard one. <laughs> Um, and I know that it's something that's come up on your podcast before. I know that it's come up in a lot of different discussions and, and it's a hard one, but, you know, I, I, I often think of the Aldo Leopold quote, um, Aldo Leopold was an author who, who, um, kind of was one of the founders of, of the current science of fish and wildlife management, but he wrote a sand County almanac and, and other things, but his quote is something along the lines of, you know, to, to love something or to love a place, we have to have to see and fondle it, right? We have to be there. We have to experience it. So, but the problem is that once, uh, you know, once enough people have seen and fondled the place, there's nothing left to love. And, and that certainly seems to be the case with what we're kind of currently dealing with is, is it's a very double-edged sword. And, and I'm not sure that there are easy answers to that. Right. Well, I think one of the things that, um, that you're doing that's kind of a, a different approach to this problem is that you're spending more time um, photographing uh, closer closer to home in maybe not as, I guess, well-known locations. Maybe if t- take a little bit of time and talk to us about why it is you're doing that. Yeah, so my, I guess, current project, as it were, um, is something that, that actually kind of came about through a conversation Jackson Frischman and I had. So I can't take complete credit for it <laughs> because Jackson kind of ha- helped me hatch a lot of the idea. But um, the idea was was to just get out to some of the wilderness areas that are here in my home county in Riverside County, California. Um, 
um, because I'm not very good at naming things, I just decided to call it the Wilderness Project. Um, but when I started to look at, at the Wilderness uh, Area database that that the that the uh, um, that the government has online, there's something like 16 or 17 federally designated wildernesses in Riverside County, um, and it's you know that's really pretty remarkable in and of itself. So, you know, I think the whole notion of being able to photograph close to home is is a nice one. Uh, you know, it reduces our own carbon footprint, uh, at least a little bit by, by keeping us out of airplanes and out of cars for long hours. Um, it makes a place a little bit more accessible and it also helps you get to know your home. Um, and that whole notion of, of a sense of place is something that I've always kind of written about in my, on my blog and in my photography, uh, and things like that. But it's been really nice to, to actually just dig into the place that I live, you know, um, I'm not really very far into the wilderness project at this point. I think I've got maybe seven or so of the, of the wilderness areas photographed, um, or visited, I should say. Um, but man, it's been really, really great to get to know the place where I live and the place where I've spent the last 15 years. A lot of the places I've visited are places that I've driven by, you know, you know, literally dozens of times and, and have never stopped to, to really discover. And there's been some really nice things to discover. Um, just some really, really nice days spent alone in the wilderness. Some nice nights spent alone in the wilderness with you know literally nobody else around because nobody goes to yeah. these places. I love that. I mean, that's, that's what wilderness is all about right there. It really is. And it's been one of the most rewarding things for me in photography so far is taking on this project because I, um, you know, like I said, I've just discovered things that I've driven by a bunch. Um, um, and I've also discovered things I didn't even know were there that are really, really cool. So it's been great. And like you said, it's the whole notion of wilderness. Um, so, you know, I'm trying to, to highlight these places. I'm trying to to tell the world about them, but to, at the same time to avoid some of the conundrum of that double-edged sword that I talked about. It's also not a, a guide to photography. I'm not naming specific places where I've gone. I'm not giving directions. I'm just talking about the ecology and the, and the, and the area when I visit these places. Um, but other than that, it's just borders on a map. So, um, <laughs> you know, there's kind of embracing the whole choose your own adventure uh, idea of, of just, you know, you can look it up on a map, you can figure out your own adventure, but know that it's pretty and know that it's worth protecting. <laughs> well, what would you say your artistic goal is for the project? You know, my artistic goal is to learn to portray these places in, in ways that maybe haven't been acknowledged before, you know, um, trying to find the plants and the animals, um, and of course the landscapes as well that, that people may not know exist. Um, at this point, it's kind of an artistic documentary project where, I mean, I'm not going out and just taking photos for an hour on a, on a, you know, Saturday afternoon and driving home in time for dinner. You know, I'm not, I'm not just running out and snapping a few photos with my iPhone to document it. I'm really trying to spend time in the place. Um, but as far as the artistic realization goes, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make good photographs I'm trying to expand my writing skills, which I know maybe isn't something that, that people always think about when they think about photographic projects, but I'm trying to expand my writing skills and trying to come up with new ways to write about wilderness, um, as well as to highlight some of the reasons that we uh, need to protect these places. So it's a little bit of an exercise in creative writing as well. Mm. Um one of the things that I love about a very focused project like that um, is that it, um, it, it kind of reduces you down to distilling things to their core and um, makes you really focus in on kind of the finer details that other, you know, otherwise you might uh, overlook or look past as a photographer and an artist. I'm curious, um, have you found that limiting yourself in this way has it has it been helpful to you, or um, or do you what are kind of what do you how do you see the 
the lat limitation impacting your photography or the final product? You know, Matt, it actually has uh, been pretty eye-opening in that regard as well. Um, a lot, you know, like you said, you know, I mean, you're you're really limiting yourself. You know, I'm photographing something within these boundaries on a map, and and as a result of that, you have to come up with a way to make the landscape speak. Um, you know, to, to to really capture the essence of the landscape. Um, you know, for instance, a couple of months ago, I was in the little Chuckwalla Mountains, uh, kind of closer to the Arizona-California border than um, anything coastal here in California. And, uh, you know, just really hard scrabble, rocky mountain range, no real plants to speak of at all. It was just rock. And, and so, you know, obviously the types of photos I'm going to take there are going to be a little bit different than some of the you know, photos I'm going to be taking in some of the more wooded areas and things like that. So being able to find, you know, uh, forgive the purple prose for a second, <laughs> but being able to try to find the voice of, of each of these individual wilderness areas has been a really exciting thing. And, and I think that's part of the reason that I've enjoyed it so much is because they are all so mm. different. Um, you know, one of the things that, that people have always kind of said, I know that Sarah's mentioned it a few times and Jackson has mentioned is, is my attention to those small landscapes, you know, the intimate landscape photography. And, and I definitely feel like that's been honed a little bit more as well. I've gotten to try some new photographic techniques that, that I've never really been able to try before, or maybe I should say never really thought of trying before because I've always been focused on something else. So um, it has been nice because I have been able to try those new techniques and things like that as well. So, yeah. And just um, what, yeah. what techniques um, specifically are you trying to use? Well, one that comes to mind is um, well, a couple that come to mind actually. So what the, the first one is actually one that I've really admired from both Sarah and Ron from a, uh, for a really long time, which is their use of, of a really shallow depth of field when they're doing their plant photography, hmm. um, you know, just the really soft coloration and things like that. And uh, I've been able to try that out on some yuccas that I discovered in the South Fork of the San Jacinto wilderness uh, here in Southern California back in January. And, and it worked out really, really well. You know, I've never really put the time into, into trying that before. And I've admired that to, in their photography for a really, really long time. So being able to put it into practice myself was really fun. Um, and then another thing that I've kind of gotten a little bit back into is a little bit of astrophotography, mm. uh, which I'm not really good at at all. Um, but I try, and I, I suppose there's some, you know, credit to be given for trying, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, that's kind of enjoyable as well because I'm sitting there looking at this star-filled night sky, um, usually by myself when I'm visiting these wilderness areas. And it's really nice to be able to, to try to make some images during that time. So it's, it's, it's been kind of fun to sort of kind of get back into some astrophotography as well, even though, like I said, you aren't going to see probably a whole lot of those come out in the final <laughs> portfolio but it's fun to try yeah i, I gotta tell you man um I, astro is probably one of my first um loves in landscape and um i don't know there's something about it it makes you think totally differently than other types of photography like you have to there's a lot of pre-visualization that happens that you can't you can't really see on the lcd until you come home and piece it together so right um, I don't know. It, it's fun. <laughs> That's cool. No, I've, you know, a couple of years ago, probably five or 10 years ago, or seven, something like that. I really tried to make a pretty good effort at it. You know, a lot of star trails and, and stuff like that. And, um, I don't know, kind of got out of it, kind of lost interest a little bit in it. You know, I guess it's not for everybody, but, sure. um, uh, it's, it has been fun to rediscover, you know, it's been, it's been really kind of an enjoying, you know, an enjoyable thing to sort of get to know astrophotography again. And, and I certainly admire photographers like you who do it well, because I don't think, um, that's anywhere in my future, but that's okay too. Um, oh, absolutely. I, I'm also lazy. So unless I can reach the, you know, the cable release from my sleeping bag, it's, 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 it's also fairly unlikely to happen. So. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Well, one of the things I struggle with is with those um, intimate 
landscape type things is um, like the composition is so much more difficult to visualize. Like, I don't know, like um, I'm just starting to like get a, a little bit of a knack for it, but man, it is, if you want to challenge yourself, like focus on those intimate landscape scenes and like, it's like, woof, talk about a challenge. Good Lord. I really enjoy intimate landscapes and, and probably unlike uh, astrophotography, there's not a whole lot of, of pre-visualization, at least on my part, you know, I'll just be kind of walking along and I'll see something and kind of look at it and um, maybe walk around it a couple of times and, and start thinking, God, can I put this into a, into a composition? And right. <laughs> sometimes I walk off and think, ah, it just isn't going to happen. And other times I try it and it doesn't work, but sometimes it works out really, really well. Um, but for me, a lot of that just comes down to going for a walk and not really being too concerned with the camera, but just noticing little things here and there that, that you think maybe can be pieced into a composition. And you know, like I said, sometimes it doesn't work out and, and sometimes it really does, but yeah, those are kind of the antithesis of pre-visualization because a lot of times I would say nine times out of 10, it's something like some of my, my, my favorite intimate landscapes are the ones that I, I didn't see coming. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would say um, that that style of photography where you, where you're, you slow down and you're just trying to be observant and you have zero expectations and you're kind of just open-minded to anything that you find and see. I feel like that's almost the perfect, at least in my mind, it's the perfect definition of like communing with nature and like making that, that, that commune commune with nature like a natural uh pairing with photography like i feel like it just i don't know it just facilitates that relationship so readily um it's, yeah I, it's I, really I fun agree. <laughs> i agree completely yeah i mean it's like i said it's i think that that's probably i, I don't know like i said a lot of people i know jackson will talk about my style uh every now and again and and, and i've heard other people say it as well and uh, and I look at my stuff. I'm like, there's not a style to this. I just get lucky. <laughs> but then I look at it. But that, but then I come back to it a couple of days later, and I'm like, you know, there there kind of is a little bit of a of a voice here. <laughs> um, and if I think about it, a lot of what I've done over the last couple of years, some of my favorite work from the last couple of years is is stuff that I really went in with no expectations of, and just w- went for a walk and started to take photos and. Um, and things ended up working out. So I certainly find myself over the last few years doing less and less and less planning. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in fact, for this wilderness project, I've had to do a little bit more planning than I'm used to because um, uh, for a lot of these wilderness areas, especially the ones out in the desert, there's very, very little information on. So I've spent a lot more time with, to- you know, with, you know, with the topo maps and things like that to look for roads and, you know, potential access points and things like that, that I'm used to doing. So um, that's been, you know, really enjoyable. You know, I mean, I, I've always loved maps and I've always loved spending time in these places. So it's been kind of fun to get back into it and actually spend some time kind of doing that sort of stuff as well. Yeah. Um, Well, speaking of the, uh, the wilderness project that you're working on, um, I'm curious, um, like, you know, since you're photographing these places that are not necessarily as well known, um, how do you balance your goal of wanting to photograph those unknown places and share information about those places um, with the risk that additional exposure could actually harm that place? Right. You know, that's, that is the, again, returning to that sword that we've, that I mentioned a little bit ago. And, um, you know, one of the things that I've made clear on my wilderness project kind of website is, um, or the portion of my website devoted to this project is that it's absolutely not intended to be a photographic guide. Um, and so when I talk about visiting places, I, I talk about the wilderness area. I talk about what you might find in that wilderness area. I talk about conservation concern, uh, you know, things like that. If there is conservation concern, Um, but I have been avoiding giving any specifics about my own visit, you know, um, 
you know, I, I, I don't say, oh, you know, I'm, you know, last Saturday I drove down this road and hiked up this canyon and spent the night on this ridge and stuff like that. I'm certainly not giving those sorts of, um, of details. Mm. Um, any geotagging I do is done um, pretty responsibly. I think on Instagram, I've even used the geotag of planet Earth for a couple of right. Days. I I just do like Colorado. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm I trying to be as vague as possible, and I think the geotagging responsibly is is probably a major first step that any photographer can take when they share when they share their stuff in social media. Um, but yeah, you know, and that's something that I struggle with a little bit is how am I going to balance this as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger? Um, I suppose part of it is not being too vain. I mean, I, I, I don't see thousands and thousands of people flocking to any of these places because of my work. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't really see that happening. Um, I would hope that thousands and thousands of people would see this and say, Hey, these places are worth protecting. I'm going to take the time to write a letter or write an email to my congressman asking them to protect these places. That would be my hope. Um, but you know, the reality of it is that, that I'm not naive and, and some people might see these and say, Hey, that looks really pretty. I kind of want to go there. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I try to remind people that the visiting responsibly is, is, is important. I try to write that into my blog posts as, as much as the, the photographs are, but you know, uh, yeah, it's a tough one and, and it's a tough balance, but I am at the end of the day calling these places out by name. And, and as a result of that, people are, are going to go to those places potentially. And, and it's something that I guess I have to be okay with, you know, I guess another asset or you know, I guess another facet of it too, now that I'm talking and thinking about it, is that the reality is that a lot of these places aren't really places that you end up by accident. Um, you know, very few of these places are places that you're going to be driving by and say, hey, we should pop in there for a few minutes. I heard it looked cool. Um, there are places that you have to make an intentional effort to go to. And, and hopefully that just kind of in and of itself helps to reduce the visitation just a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, you know, it's a tough one, and, and it's one that I don't really know how to deal with. Um, you know, like I said, geotagging responsibly, not giving a lot of details, leaving a lot of it up to the up to the reader is, is about the best that I can think to do at this point. Yeah, I don't necessarily have an answer myself, although my instinct tells me that, um, you know, the, the mass proliferation of education to the masses about, you know, what it actually means to be responsible. I feel like that's ultimately the only way we're going to make a difference in the long run. I think so. I mean, well, I, you know, I guess you've been doing a, a somewhat similar thing with your own, uh, you know, f- f- uh, photography, doing a lot of the photography, which by the way, some of it is amazing of your photography from some of the peaks in Colorado. Um, and I know that Colorado peaks and peak bagging is a much more popular endeavor than going and trouncing around lonely desert canyons <laughs> out in the California desert. Um, but, you know, I guess to some extent, you and I are both doing a little bit of the similar sort of stuff. We're going to these difficult to reach places. We're taking pretty pictures. And even though we may not necessarily be giving details about our visit, we are calling the places out by name. So, um, how do you deal with that with that conundrum? How do you deal with that double-edged sword? Well, Let me ask you. <laughs> uh, well, I will say historically, I've not done a good job at all. I mean, even as short a time ago as two years ago, I remember I was in a location here in Color- southwest Colorado um, called Island Lake. And um, I was up there with a bunch of friends. Not a bunch, like there's five of us and. Um, one of our friends, they had some people that kind of in, incidentally were up there at the same time that they knew. And we got to talking to them and they've been going up there for years. They live in Ophir, Colorado, which is pretty close. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, they, they commented that they've just seen a huge influx of people over the last probably 10, 15 years to that location. And we were both kind of surprised by it and kind of saddened by it. And and then I don't know, like I got super excited about the trip and my, I climbed a mountain while I was there. So I, you know, I did a blog post about it and, um, I even have like 
like a map, you know, like here's where I went. Uh-huh. And that person that was there, like they actually reached out to me and told me, um, you know, that they, they were really surprised that I did that, that I wrote an article about it. Um, that, um, I mean, not, they didn't really mince their words. They were like, you know, you probably should be ashamed of yourself. Like, wow. you, what, what were you thinking? Like, we just talked about both feeling like this place is over visited. Why are you making right. it? You know, at first I was like, well, I, I get that, but you know, one more blog post isn't going to like make it, make it that big of a difference. But in the long run, I think kind of it can. So I've just been more mindful about how I talk about places and what I share with the public. And um, if I do share, um, you know, specifics, I make a point of trying to explain to people um, how to how to treat that place with respect, um, how to um, you know what to look out for in terms of conservation issues and, and the environmental issues of that location. You know whether it be like packing out your trash or um, or whatever. So I don't know. I view I'm, I view it now more as a you know people are gonna Google these places um, and find it. Um, so if they're going to find it, why not find my site, but then also learn how to be a better uh, protector of that place in the process. It's a really good answer. I mean, it's, it's a hard one. I mean, I guess short of not sharing your work at all, <laughs> um, how, how do we mitigate things? Right. Um, which I suppose the idea of not sharing your work at all might be the you know, subject of an entirely different podcast, but, um, uh, you know, it seems like we're on the same page and, uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I could certainly see myself getting emails from, you know, somebody saying, Hey, you know, you're calling, you know, I've been going out to these places for 15 years and why are you calling them out by name all of a sudden? Because like I said, some of these places are really difficult to find any information on at all. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. A lot of the California or a lot of the, you know, desert wildernesses were created as part of the California Desert Protection Act. Um, what in, uh, I think next year's the 25th anniversary of the California Desert Protection Act. Um, and they were just, it's the same thing that made, you know, Death Valley a national park and Joshua Tree a national park and things like that. Um, and so I think as a result of that sort of mass wilderness designation that occurred, a lot of these places aren't really on people's radar and things like that. So maybe I'm the first person really starting to advertise these places. And that could be, uh, you know, potentially, you know, sort of anti to what I want to accomplish. But really, I just want people to see them and yeah. and, and appreciate them. And, you know, if it's somebody who drives to Vegas all the time or, or to Phoenix all the time along the I-10 corridor, I want them to see that there's more out there than ugly desert. You know, it's it's not something that just needs to be zoomed through as fast as possible. There's there's life there and it's really kind of important life. And uh, I, w- I want people to see that. And so, man, it's a it's a challenge to balance the two, though. I don't really know what the answers are. I know. Well... You you touched on something that I hoped you could maybe expand upon a little bit. Um, that um, I think would be an interesting uh, thing to talk about. Um, you had mentioned that um, there's a point to actually preserving and protecting the deserts. And until I had spent some time on your website and reading your blog, I actually hadn't really thought a whole lot about that myself. Um, and obviously, it's all rooted in science. Um, so for those listeners that are maybe thinking the same thing I did, like, well, yeah, deserts can be pretty, but I can't really think of, um, off the top of my head in my own, my own naive state, why, why we should protect them. So why are the deserts worth, uh, photographing and, and, and keeping and saving? Well, they're worth photographing because (laughs) they're beautiful. Um, but, (laughs) uh, you know, I mean, every desert has its own ecology, but specifically here in Southern California, the Mojave is is a really remarkable place. Um, you know, there was a, a, a series of papers that came out uh, a few years ago. A couple of them were published in Nature, uh, which is a really kind of premier scientific journal, um, kind of 
quantifying the extent to which the plants in the Mojave, specifically creosote, which is one of the dominant species, um, actually uh, is an incredible carbon fixing plant. Um, meaning, uh, you know, kind of in simple terms, that what these plants do is they're incredibly good at removing uh, excess carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Um, and you know, it's carbon dioxide that's one of the gases that we're most concerned with when it comes to global warming and things like that, and, and you know, you know, global climate change. Um, so, you know, the Mojave is a massive desert. I mean, it's something like uh, I don't know. I forget exactly how big it is. It's um, uh, in terms of the percentage of California's landmass. But if you spend any time in California at all, you know, it's a big state. Um, and the Mojave takes up something like 25% of the landmass of California or, or occupies something like that. So um, the fact that we have so much landmass filled with these plants that are incredibly good at carbon fixation is utterly remarkable. Um, and so you know, one of the big pushes right now is that people see this vast stretches of empty desert and they say, man, that would be awesome place to put a, a set of solar panels or something like that. Um, but the problem is when you go and you put in solar panels, you scrape up a huge amount of desert floor that is, you know, home to these plants that are essentially removing carbon dioxide from our atmosphere. <laughs> Um, so we can't just fill the desert up with solar panels, you know, um, for that reason alone. Uh, but then, you know, we also have habitat for a lot of sensitive species. You know, there are a lot of plant species that exist in these really small pockets of the desert and nowhere else. Uh, we have things like desert tortoises um, out on the Chuckwalla Bench out in eastern California, uh, out towards the, the town of Blythe, which is on the Colorado River. I mean, that's critical desert tortoise habitat. And it's also one of those places where they say, hey, this would be a great place for a set of solar panels. Hmm. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not just a place that we can scrape up and we can, uh, uh, you know, kind of put these, these big solar things on. And, and it makes sense, right? I mean, you look at it and you say, well, this be, there's a ton of sun and there's empty space. Nobody wants to live here, so we might as well put solar panels. But, you know, I think solar uh, is one of those things that really just should be mandatory on all new builds. And, and uh, if we put it in, in Los Angeles or Las Vegas or something like that, as opposed to the desert, I think that that would be a better place for it. Um, but there are all sorts of sensitive species. The Mojave is critical habitat for many, many species of migrating birds. Mm. Um, you know, the water that is here is incredibly important for everything. Um, you know, Death Valley is really well known uh, for the desert pupfish. Um, there's the Cat is Water Project in, in San Bernardino County that is has been receiving a lot of attention as of late because people want to pump water from... Uh, this aquifer out in the middle of the desert and basically ship it to Orange County. Um, but that would be devastating environmentally and stuff like that. So, you know, uh, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's a really live ecosystem. It's a really important ecosystem, but it's also one that's really, really sensitive. And if we screw around with it too much, it, it's going to die. And I think that we're going to see that it's, um, in a lot of ways, a keystone for a lot of the ecology of other, you know, of other places that we sort of take for granted. Mm -hmm. So um, I think if the desert died, we would see really, really devastating consequences as a result of the desert dying. And, and so we have to protect it. Yeah, it's interesting because when you think of the desert, at least for me, it's like, oh, it's just this vast open area that uh, doesn't really have a whole lot going on. But that's definitely not the case. <laughs> No, it absolutely isn't. You know, it's it's a it's a very very live place, even though it may not always look like it. But it's um, just remarkable. And like I said, it's it's a keystone. If you take it out, the whole the whole thing could collapse. And so we don't, you know, we have to be very careful with what we do to the desert. I'm afraid. Yeah, I just looked it up. It's uh, forty eight thousand square miles, Mojave Desert. Yeah, <laughs> and there are a few. Uh, you know, and, and the thing about the solar out in the desert as well is that, you know, there's a few really um, people who have driven from Southern California to Las Vegas on I-15 see that 
freaking eyesore on I-15, uh, the Ivanpah Solar Project. Um, but, you know, all it really does is kill birds. Um, it doesn't really generate the amount of electricity that, that they advertise when they pitch the project. Um, in fact, it's really, really far below uh, what they said what it was going to generate. But it, it kills about 6,000 birds a year. So it's, uh, uh, you know, not a very good investment i don't think um there are more you know there are things that are more worthwhile to me than than solar uh fields out in the desert well yeah it's funny because uh, you see these debates all the time out there where like people you know you, you mentioned to people like well we should maybe not you know go gung-ho for drilling for oil and gas and they're like well but solar is the devil and it takes does all this and then, like to me it's like you guys missed the point. It's not an and or. It's a where does the where does that type of energy make the most sense and have the least amount of impact? <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, there's arguments for and against. I mean, obviously, with solar, we're not taking oil out of the ground. We're not making new roads to get to these you know well sites or. Um, you know, we're not fracking, <laughs> um, and things like that. So, oh yeah, those are all win, you know, wins, but at the same time, we're not, you know, there, there are definitely costs to it. It's not one of those things that, that's, a, a freebie as it were, you know, it's, it, it, it definitely comes at a cost. And I think people need to understand that, that those sorts of things do come at a cost. Right, right, right. Um, even the electric cars, right? I mean, yeah, if you have an electric car, that's 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 wonderful. But man, you got to have lithium for your battery, and guess what? It's got to come from somewhere, right? Which means mining. <laughs> it does. And, We're pretty uh, much damned you know, if you do, damned if you don't. Nowadays, I feel like. <laughs> oh, basically, yeah. That's basically what it comes down to. Yeah, that's why you know I think mandatory rooftop solar on new builds is is about one of the best compromises there is right now because you aren't destroying habitat. It is solar, um, which is good. And, and they're coming a long way with solar cell technology where, you know, they can really pack a lot of energy producing power into a small space. And that might be the best way to go, but I think ultimately you're right. You're just damned if you do and damned if you don't. Yeah. Well, for other photographers that uh, might be newer to learning about um, conservation issues, and perhaps uh, the history of protecting wild places. Um, do you have any mm -hmm. uh, suggestions or, or favorite books or resources where people might be able to learn more about, uh, about it? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a ton of stuff, um, you know, in terms of um, just what to read kind of in terms of news and stuff like that. Um, you know, there are some great resources online. High Country News is a really good source for highlighting problems. They have really pretty decent, uh, you know, uh, kind of extended stories that take place over the, you know, like, you know, stories they follow and follow up on, things like that. And they typically do a really good job. Um, for people who are on Facebook, you know, fairly regularly and things like that, um, uh, Basin and Range Watch is a really good group to follow uh, that sort of follows things here, at least in, you know, uh, Nevada and California and things like that. They follow things fairly well. Um, you know, uh, there's a couple of really good books um, that are that are really good for starting to get to know the West and the the specific issues with the West. Uh, one author is is a guy named Daniel Chemis. Uh, K-E-M-M-I-S, who's, uh, he was the mayor of Missoula, Montana for a really long time. Um, and he's done a really good job of sort of writing about, um, you know, very generally speaking, the way that, you know, kind of the Western ideology and uh, the interplay with public lands and, and maybe the way that things work. I really enjoyed his writing an awful lot. Um, but as far as getting into photography, and, uh, you know, kind of learning about the conservation issues that matter most and things like that. You know, one of the things that I've always enjoyed is, is just sort of, you know, what I would maybe put in quotes is called sense of place writing. Because um, this whole notion, like I said earlier, of sense of place has is, is been kind of something that's always run pretty deep in my own photography. Um, and reading the way that other writers describe places can be really, really helpful. So 
you know, I've always enjoyed the writing of Ellen Malloy. Um, I think she's most well known for her book, uh, The Anthropology of Turquoise, but she's got another really good book called um, Eating Stone about bighorn sheep ecology that, that's really enjoyable. Um, uh, Terry Tempest Williams, I enjoy an awful lot. Um, I really like um, uh, Katie Lee. Uh, I think she recently passed away, but she did a really nice job about writing about Glen Canyon and some kind of issues surrounding that and things like that. So, you know, those are sort of more, you know, not their writing is based in fact, but it's also you know, just sort of memoir sort of writing and stuff like that. But it's always really enjoyable to read their sorts of stuff. But, um, but I do like Daniel Chemis. I like, I like Basin and Range Watch and High Country News for news. Cool. Yeah, no, we'll definitely put uh, links to all that in the blog post um, for, for this podcast sure. episode. And um, I think I've got some homework to do. <laughs> You know, it's it's enjoyable to read. I have a I have a huge bookshelf. I probably could uh, maybe even after this is over, um, I'm drawing a blank on a lot of this, but I could send you some other recommendations as well that we could put in the blog. Oh, post. that'd be great. Well, cool, man. So, um, a couple more questions. So, um, I guess, what advice would you have for for other photographers that are listening to the podcast? What advice would I have? Advice. Well, you know, I think probably one of the most formative things for me that is sort of an ongoing thing is to um, is to really think about what your voice is. You know, think about what you want to say with your photography, and and just to kind of come back to where we sort of started the evening together. You know, it's for me, um, it's kind of come back to conservation a little bit, kind of coming back to calling place, you know, calling attention to these areas that that maybe don't have a voice on their own. And, um, and it's allowing me kind of along the way to, to develop my artistic skills a little bit, to try some new techniques that, that maybe I wouldn't try if I was just chasing the bigger locations and things like that. But I think developing voice and, and focusing on that, um, not forcing it, but focusing on it is is a really, really powerful thing in photography. So I think that if I were to give a single piece of advice to a new photographer, um, that would be probably one of the biggest ones. Um, and then maybe a secondary one is just maybe to think about the impact that you're having. You know, think about the way that you're geotagging, think about the way that you're going about things while you're developing your voice, because that can be very powerful as well, both in a positive way and, and unfortunately in a negative way as well. So it's, it's good to sort of think about those things. But I think if I were to give advice to a photographer, um, maybe even not a new photographer, but maybe somebody who's been doing it a while, those are the two things that I would focus on. So for, for people that heard you say, um, <laughs> well, find your voice. Like, do you have, any concrete um, advice in terms of like specific methods or things to do to be able to, to start, to start down that path? <sighs> well, <laughs> a million dollar question, uh, right? That's the million dollar question. You know, I, I would take one of, I would take one of Guy Tal's workshops. Um, <laughs> I think he probably is, is, is is really good at teaching that him and michael gordon i think um have a have a good curriculum in terms of getting started but i suppose if you were going to twist my arm um i think one of the things that i would say is perhaps a little bit non-intuitively forget about the camera for a little while and and think about the way that you see nature you know um get out there and, and spend time, uh, you know, go for a walk with your camera. I mean, don't leave your camera at home just because you're trying to develop your voice, but get out there and go for a walk and, and, and think about the things that are important to you. Think about the light that catches your eye. Um, is it stormy light? Is it sunset light? Is it, you know, the, the way the light hits the plants? Is it the plants that excite you? You know, I mean, sometimes people just really love the way that, that plants interact with the environment and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but just get out there and think about what it all means to you. Um, and to some extent, that might mean 
not looking at so much photography on social media and stuff like that, because I think that that can kind of maybe guide us, whether it's conscious or not in one way or another. But maybe if you, if you just focus on yourself for a while, that could be a really good thing. I love that. Um, I love that. That said, you know, one of the things that I did when I kind of got into photography is I, I participated a lot in, in critique forums and, uh, you know, that was to some extent really, really helpful in helping me develop my technical skills, um, which I guess is the other side of it, right? Um, there's your voice and then there are your technical skills. And, and critique forums certainly helped me to develop the, the uh, you know, the technical skills that I needed to be a good photographer. So Yeah. Well, I love that advice, especially like what you said about just put the camera down for a second and look around and like what actually, you know, I don't know, I guess for me, it's like to simplify that. It's like, what gets you excited when you're out in nature? Like, is it, uh, is it the, like to your point, is it like the way the light hits the rocks or the sunset or like, what is it that you like? And and then, and then just really focus on that. Right. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, like for me personally, I mean, a good example is that, Man, I love a good nuclear sunset as much as anybody. But I also, I think, really prefer to photograph subtlety, you know. Um, and so I found myself over the last couple of years, you know, if a good subtle sunset is shaping up, I'll photograph that. But if it goes nuclear, I, I might take a couple of photos just to have them, but I really just kind of sit and stare. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and I enjoy that an awful lot as well. So, sure. yeah. Well, it's. I think that that I think that comes with experience. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the whole reason we're out there, any of us is out there, is because we love nature, and and it's it's great to be out there and photograph it. But forgetting to stand in awe of it for a little while, I think, is one of the biggest mistakes that we can make. No, I agree for sure. Well, man, awesome. So who do you think would be awesome to have on the podcast? Well, well, there are so many good photographers out there, and you've had a lot of them on the show. Um, But, you know, two photographers who have uh, really been a big influence on me, um, they've become good friends, and uh, um, I really, really admire their work, are Alistair Benn. Uh, who is a Scottish photographer. Uh, he lives in Scotland right now, although he's done a lot of work in China. And uh, Royce Howland, who lives in Calgary. Um, both of those photographers are just very, very thoughtful in their process, um, very place-driven, very introspective in terms of their photography, and I admire them both a lot. Um, and I would also add that I know that He's he's got a lot going on right now, but I think Jackson Frischman would be great to have on the show. I totally agree. <laughs> I've actually reached out to him. He's uh yeah, I think it will make it happen eventually. Well, he's he he's going to be one of the groomsmen at my wedding in a couple of weeks, so maybe wait for the, for the for that to. <laughs> oh, to well, congratulations! To yeah, thank you. <laughs> I've got a, uh, I've got him booked for a couple of days in in in, in uh, early January. Oh, cool! Well, man, this has been really fun, and it's um, I feel like, um, I don't know, I feel like we share a lot of the same values. So it's really been um, just real enjoyable talking to you on the podcast, and appreciate all the effort you're making to kind of bring voice to some of these issues and through your photography and your writing and. Just wanted to um, thank you for that work. Oh, well, you know, thank you, Matt. I really appreciate the podcast. Um, you know, I appreciate the work that you're doing to, to, to build a community of photographers um, who do have common values. And I think that that's a really important thing. So it's an honor to be on the show. Um, I really appreciate you asking me, and it's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. Ah, well, thanks to Greg for taking the time to visit with us on the podcast this week. I'm really excited to follow Greg's project and see how his vision interprets those amazing wilderness desert vistas. If you enjoyed our talk, there's a lot more over on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash fstopandlisten. Next week, we sit down with landscape photographer and intellectual property lawyer, Arka Chatterjee. 
We learn all about how copyright law impacts photographers, and we do a deep dive and share all kinds of wisdom on how to protect yourself legally as a landscape photographer and how to protect your images. I'm in the process of building a new website on Jack Brower's platform, Wide Range Galleries. So far, I have really enjoyed the one-on-one attention that Jack gives through the process, and the back end of the system, I think, is blows away everything else I've ever used before. I'm currently using uh, Zenfolio and don't really like it a lot. I've been using it for like six or seven years, and I'm really excited to make the switch to Jack's system. Um, If you're looking to build a photography website to sell your photography, I highly recommend it. If you do use Jack's service, let them know you heard about it on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, Another way you can help the podcast is write a review on iTunes. It really does help, and... uh, well, I, want to, I would love to see the podcast get into the top 10 in the arts category. That would be really cool to see. Well, as usual, if you want to leave comments about the episode, uh, head over to the liner notes on my blog at mattpainphotography.com or hit me up on social media. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram as mattpainphoto uh, or on Facebook as mattpainphotography or you can find our really fun Facebook group at fstop collaborate and listen in the uh, Facebook groups. Well, thanks for listening, and I hope you'll tune in next week to learn all about intellectual property. Take care.